Lord, we thank you so much uh, for Nigel's preparation today. And we thank you for the Desborough family. Uh, thank you for having uh, Josh back over summer. And we just thank you for all that they contribute uh, to the church here and to the wider community. So we just thank you for um, what Nigel's prepared. And we pray uh, we receive well anything that's not from you, Lord. Just drop that. And just pray, um, yeah, we take this message into our hearts. Amen. Good, it's good to see you this morning. We're looking at a new series. We're starting a new series today, and it's one of the letters in the New Testament letter of Paul to the church in Corinth uh, called Two Corinthians. That's where we're going to head over the next while. And it's kind of holiday time, isn't it? It's holiday time, so we're going to Greece today. You all knew that Corinth was in Greece, so we're heading to Greece today. And uh, I don't know how, is that the... Yes. We're going to head off to to Corinth. So Paul was uh, a leader, a significant leader in uh, the early church, and he made missionary journeys around the Mediterranean. And uh, if you've been around a while, or most people know that uh, it was Jerusalem where the great events of Jesus giving his life for us on the cross took place. And we were talking earlier in the service about the blood of Christ. Sometimes you can say things, uh, and it's just like a religious term, but it means that he died and shed his blood as he gave his life as a sacrifice so that we could come to know God the Father. So those events there and his resurrection took place in Jerusalem. And then Paul, when he was on the road to Damascus there, um, he encountered Jesus. He met the risen Lord Jesus, Jesus had died but risen again and Paul met him and it completely changed his life. And then he was motivated when he was trained to go around uh, the Mediterranean with the gospel. And uh, we've actually got some people from Ankara here today, so welcome. Uh, But Paul preached the gospel uh, in Turkey and then into Greece. And today um, we're looking at the time when he arrived in Corinth. I've got a question for you. And the question is, what is an isthmus? Did I say that right? Neck, yep. We've got a doctor there because it's kind of a medical thing as well. Uh, But in uh, geography, it's a, a bit of land, a strip of land that joins two bigger portions of land with water either side. And uh, I always remember that the isthmus of Corinth, it's kind of a phrase that I remember maybe from school days or whatever. And so there is that, that isthmus there, joining mainland Greece to the Penelope's, Pe- what? not Penelope's, Peloponnese. <laughs> Close, keeping you. And uh, Corinth is just there on the western side of that isthmus. And what kind of city was Paul going into? He's writing to this city. What kind of city was he going into? It was um, a significant city. It had been very significant in Greek times. And then the Romans came and demolished the whole place. But 100 years later, Julius Caesar came along and rebuilt the city. And again, it became significant. It was a proud city. And they were very mindful of status. They liked uh, status and fame and they were the host of the Isthmian Games, so they really valued status there. It was a significant port city and trading center uh, across Greece and the wider world, and so it was a center of trade, so money flowed and wealth grew 
in that place. And then above the city was a mountain, and uh, it was 2,000 feet high, and it's called Acro Corinth. And the city was built in the shadow of that mountain. And in those times, people worshipped gods and often worshipped gods up in mountains. Uh, what god did they worship on the Corinthian mountain, on Acro Corinth? Any ideas what god they worshipped? They worshipped Aphrodite, and uh, the Romans called her Venus, basically the goddess of sex. And so they were valuing status, they were valuing money and wealth, and they were valuing sex. And at its uh, zenith, there was a huge temple on top of the mountain, and uh, apparently there were a thousand prostitutes based at that temple. And in a city of 80 to 100,000, all those prostitutes were available at night uh, for their services. So a significant center in that way and known uh, for its uh, sexual promiscuity. So Paul thought that's a really good place to start a church. Uh, So he went there and started the church in Corinth. And first of all, we want to look at Acts chapter 18. That's how the church was started And then we're going to finish off with our letter to Corinthians. So if you've got a Bible or you've got a Bible on your phone, if you turn to Acts 18, I'll just read through that story again. Scott read it for us at the start. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. We just saw the map there earlier on. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who'd recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, He shook out his clothes in protest and said, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you and no one's going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. just want to go through uh, that story very quickly from Acts 18. So Paul was there to start a church, and he started a church... Uh, where the gospel was unknown. People didn't know the story of Jesus. They didn't know about his death and resurrection. They didn't know that eternal life was promised in Jesus. And he was a real pioneer and wants to celebrate those people that are pioneering with the the gospel. Uh, I spent part of this week, and Sam spent the whole week at the INET conference, the International Network, and overseas workers come together once a year to talk about what God's doing around the world. And there's still situations of pioneering. So maybe Paul could speak to us about starting 
a new church, about pioneering, about taking the message of Jesus where it's never been heard before. It's really, really important. But also culture changes, doesn't it? And there are, you can think, well, we've had Christianity in the West for 2,000 years nearly. But culture changes and there are places where people don't really know anything about Jesus, even in the modern Western world. So there's new, fresh opportunities for pioneering. And Paul was bold. He went on his own initially, completely on his own. That takes a lot of courage. I don't know what you're, you're like in going into a fresh situation, wanting to bring some good news to people. They may not hear it as good news, but he was bold enough to do that. And maybe we need a new boldness, a new impetus to share our faith as well. But then he found a small team. He found this couple, and he began to work together in team. And that's so important, isn't it? And when Jesus sent the disciples out to preach the gospel, he sent them in pairs. And it's great to work together with other people and together in team to bring God's good news to this world. Paul worked to earn money. Uh, His profession was a tent maker, so he wasn't just paid to do what he did. He had to work to earn the money in order to bring the gospel to others. And lots of people around the world are working hard to earn the funds to bring the message of Jesus to those around the world. He started in the synagogue, and in the synagogue he found people that that had the Old Testament scriptures, that were worshippers of God. So he often uh, felt that was the right place to start. Start with people that know something about God and help them to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, God's chosen one, God in human form. So he, he worked first with people that had some faith, and then trying to help them find the true faith in Jesus. And when they rejected him, uh, he reasoned with others as well. And it's interesting that, that it says he reasoned with them. And coming to know Jesus isn't just a blind leap of faith. I've listened to programs on the radio uh, with scientists saying that uh, Christians are, are stupid and uh, Uh, It's just blind faith and uh, we can uh, understand the whole world through the lens of science and that they're actually anti-Christians. But a lot of scientists are Christians, aren't they? And there's this thought and message that you have to have a kind of blind faith if you're a Christian. It's not based on facts and evidence at all. But that's not true. Paul knew facts, he knew evidence, and he was able to reason about his faith. Now, coming to know God in a personal way doesn't just depend on reason. It depends on revelation as well. We need God to make himself known to us. Uh, When I was a teenager, I just thought there must be more to life than you live, you die, end of. And I wanted to know God, and God made himself known to me. So we need revelation. But that revelation isn't mindless. It's based on reason. Our reason's involved as well we have evidence for the life of jesus evidence for the death of jesus evidence for the resurrection of jesus historical evidence that we can go on and base our faith on so it's reason and not just blind faith number of people here have done the alpha course give us a wave you've done alpha the alpha course is excellent we'll be doing it again at the beginning of october and There is reason in that course, isn't there? Nicky Gumbel leads it, and he's a a barrister, and he's from a long line of barristers, long family of barristers. 
And he said, you can't know for sure. We weren't there. But in court, it's, it's kind of beyond reasonable doubt. You weigh up the evidence, you say, well, I wasn't there, I don't know for sure, but on the basis of the evidence I'm hearing, beyond reasonable doubt, I believe this to be true. So there's kind of legal reason in the Alpha course. And then there's a a famous scientist, Francis Collins, who headed up the Human Genome Project, and he talks as well in Alpha about him being a, a scientist and him kind of rejecting faith completely out of hand. But then he said, hang on, I'm a scientist and I'm meant to take this world and look at the evidence and examine it and then make a judgment. Why do I just reject Christianity without looking at the evidence? And through that, he came to faith in God. So there's reason involved. But then we kind of run up against another issue, uh, and that's relativism. So people say, well, you're saying it's true. That's fine. It's kind of true for you, but it's not true for me. You can believe one thing. I can believe another. And you think, how, how can you kind of reason something out if one person could just say, well, that might be all right for you, but I can believe something different. It doesn't matter if those two things don't hold together at all. We've got to think through these issues of where philosophy is going, where culture is going, and how to explain the gospel. I'm kind of, this week, a little bit thankful for Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I thought I'd do that for, for effect. One minute left. <laughs> oh, I can do a lot of damage in one minute. Reason being, there's all this stuff about, you know, you can't say what's true and what isn't true. What's true for you doesn't mean it's true for me. But then you've got Trump saying one day Theresa May's terrible, and the next day she's wonderful. And one day he's, he's with Putin and says, yeah, why, why on earth would Russia get involved in the American election. And then he flies home to Washington. He's saying, no, I misspoke. Why on earth wouldn't Russia? And he's saying completely the opposite things day by day. And there's loads of stuff on Facebook saying it does matter. What you say, what you think, what you do does matter. There is truth and reality and there is falsehood and lies. And so he's kind of helping this thing of, oh, it's true for you and not for me. It doesn't really matter. We can't say anything definite these days. It's kind of helping that because people are saying it does matter how you live, what you've done, what you say, what you believe, what's true and what isn't does actually matter. But Paul was someone that reasoned and was able to explain the faith. And maybe we can be inspired when we think about Corinthians to say, how good am I at thinking about my faith, thinking about the culture or cultures that I live in, and working out how to say something helpful to help people see the reality of Jesus. Uh, Another person that's highlighted on the Alpha course is C.S. Lewis, and uh, he was a scholar, lecturer at Oxford and Cambridge, an author, and uh, obviously wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, he was an atheist, but then through his reading and through his thinking, he started to, to reason with himself and very reluctantly think, actually, my, my reason, my reading, my thoughts is leading me to conclude that I shouldn't be an atheist anymore. And he wrote these things in the autobiography of his early life, Surprised by Joy. He said this, You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen College, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second, from my work, 
the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. He didn't want to come to God. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. And then in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. And perhaps that night became the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. (laughs) So he wasn't kind of keen on this stuff. But that was his move from atheism to theism. He began to believe there could be and there was a God. And then he moves on and uh, finds faith in Jesus, believes that Jesus is God. Uh, And this was his story. I was driven to Whipsnade. It happened to be there on a Sunday morning. Uh, When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. When we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I'd not exactly spent the journey in thought and nor in great emotion. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he's now awake. I love that suddenly kind of dawning on him that atheism isn't true. There is a God, but the God of the universe has revealed himself in Jesus, and I can know him personally. Paul reasoned and spoke about his faith, and I think I need encouragement to think through my faith, think through the culture I live in, and work out how to explain it to others and how to do it in a new way. I think that's a challenge to to all of us, and hopefully an encouragement as well. And so he reasoned and he persuaded as well. It's one thing to kind of reason with the mind, but he was persuasive in his arguments. And I think the Christian message isn't just a head thing either. It is a head thing. It's not a mindless faith, but it's a heart thing as well. You see people's lives changed. You see the lights turn on. You see people transformed. And that excites you. And there's a heart message of persuasion as, a, as well as a head message of reason. And many of the Corinthian people, I said it wasn't a promising town, they were into status, they were into wealth, they were into sex in huge immoral ways. But many of them found that message of Jesus convincing and turned to him in faith. They were persuaded and many Corinthians believed. Then what did they do? After they believed, they were baptised. And as I said in the notices, it's great that we're going to have some baptisms uh, here in a couple of weeks' time and hopefully uh, again in the autumn where you go into baptism saying that I'm identifying with Jesus, my old life without God and all the rubbish in my life is forgiven and cleansed and washed away. As you come through those waters of baptism, you come out saying I'm living together with Jesus, I'm washed clean. I'm a new person in Christ. And they did that right back then in Corinth. And we're carrying on that tradition here. And then God spoke to Paul as well. And he encouraged Paul, said, don't fear. And we could, whether it's a, a serious fear and threat of persecution, and we've been talking to people this week who are in places where there's serious death threats, around parts of the world, threats of persecution, whether it's that or whether it's more of fear of embarrassment and not wanting to stand out in a culture that's going against God. Whether it's fear or embarrassment, let's be encouraged by God to keep speaking, 
because God is with us. So that's kind of how the church in Corinth was started in a nutshell from Acts 18. And what speaks to you from this? Is it Paul's boldness and determination to speak to new people? Is it his effort to read culture and work out how to patiently but powerfully explain the gospel? Is it you need to consider the life and teaching of Jesus in a new and fresh way? Or is it that having believed, you now need to be baptized? There's lots in there, so follow it through for yourself. That's all good. It was hard work, but it was good. But is life plain sailing? No, I'm afraid not. Life isn't like that, is it? Uh, We have two letters in our Bibles uh, called 1 and 2 Corinthians. Uh, There may have been other letters. There may have been at least one more. And in what we read in Acts 18, there was this 18-month period that things seemed to go pretty well. It was hard, but there was no church, and then a church formed. So there was real success in Paul's mission. But if you read that first letter, 1 Corinthians, you see there are quite a few issues in the church that Paul has to to challenge. And so Paul challenges the problems and issues in the church. Of course, we as a church have got no problems and issues, whatever, but that, that church out there in Corinth had lots of issues. And Paul challenged them. And some people didn't like it. Some people didn't like being challenged about their faith and the way they're living their lives. And so they resented Paul. So there's a real kind of turmoil going on. And then when we get to 2 Corinthians, this letter, uh, first of all, he talks about the trouble and hardship he had in in Asia. That's in modern-day Turkey. And then when he gets into Corinth, in the second chapter, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 1, he says, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. And then verse 4, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. So helping to pioneer a church, helping to encourage a church wasn't an easy job. And maybe there's another visit, we don't know the details, but he'd gone to, to challenge the church and it had been a very difficult visit. There'd been division in the church, there'd been opposition to what he was trying to say and do and he found that very hard and then he wrote a letter and it was painful for him to write when he's challenging people and he wrote it with tears so this church ministry this gospel ministry is hard and it's difficult and it's challenging and Paul found it so and we said that the prevailing culture at the time valued status and money and sex Paul lacked worldly status He was quite poor personally. He worked as a a tent maker. He was often homeless and often in prison. So he's not like, you know, real status, powerful person you want to have around your town. So in that way, Paul challenged their values. The rich in Corinth didn't really care much about the poor. And uh, sometimes in our services we celebrate communion Uh, Churches in those times used to gather in people's houses and they'd have food together and they'd take the bread and wine after the meal and remember what Jesus had done. And if you read the story in 1 Corinthians, it says these people are rocking up 
to the person's house where the church is. And the rich people are bringing loads of wonderful food with them. And the poor people and the slaves have got virtually nothing to eat. And the rich people, part of the same church, are munching away on their food and they couldn't care less about the others. So that value of wealth and money and me hadn't been broken even though they looked like they'd formed a church and had begun to respond to the gospel. So Paul had to challenge their selfishness. And you see in Paul's letters, he's trying to raise money from the churches to bless people in Israel that were undergoing a famine at the time. And the church in Corinth weren't quick to give away their money to help with that appeal for people that were starving. So Paul challenged their values of status. He challenged them on their selfishness. And you also find in 1 Corinthians, there's a man in the church who's sleeping with his father's wife. Not his mother, but his father's wife. And Paul challenges them on their sexual morality. So he's challenging these new Christians and he's finding some acceptance, but also some resistance. He's had this kind of backlash and he agonizes about his second visit, the painful visit. Did he get it right? Did he challenge them too hard? Uh, Was he too strong on them? Uh, And then he talks about one of his letters that he wrote with tears. Was he too harsh in that letter or was his challenge right? It's really difficult to get it right, isn't it? And on the one hand, I want to be nice to everyone. And you can be, anything goes, it doesn't matter, do what you like. And on the other hand, you can be really harsh and condemn people. But you don't just want people to do what they like and cause hurt and pain eventually in their own lives and in the lives of others. How do you get it right on that kind of continuum? And it's something that Paul really battled with. And in 2 Corinthians 4, we see, I wrote not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So he's trying to show he loves these guys. He's trying to show he loves the church. But he's agonizing, has he got it right or not? And I think we need to think about those issues. I don't think the job of the church is to make rules for people outside the church. I think that's a kind of hangover from Christendom where the church got mixed up with political power and got a lot of influence but got twisted and corrupted. I don't think we're going out to to dictate to the world how they live. But on the other hand, there is a responsibility to say if we are in the church, if we're naming the name of Jesus then we have to hold each other accountable in how we're living to live up to that standard of Jesus. We're not going out to dictate to the world. We go out to the world to say, God loves them, Jesus loves them, he's died for you, come to know him. We don't dictate to them about how they live. But if they choose to come to know Jesus and join the church, then there needs to be some accountability about how we live and how we conduct our lives. And we don't want to do that in harshness but we don't want to neglect it completely. I find that a real difficult balance to get right. I think accountability is really important, and it's something we talked about uh, as leaders in the church. But isn't it so good to have twos and threes maybe together as accountability partners? So we say, how can I encourage you but also how can I challenge you to live up to your faith in Jesus and how can you do that to me? At this conference I was on this week, uh, one of the speakers, a guy called Ian King, 
who used to live down the road in Downham, is now in North London, talked about his accountability partnerships. He has a friend that they keep each other accountable about what they watch and other issues in their lives. I know Sam's talked about he so values good friends that they can meet together and hold each other accountable. And thinking about my own journey, I remember when I was an, a young Christian, uh, a friend of mine called Dave, we used to meet together, the two of us, and hold each other accountable. And then uh, more recently, I meet with a group of other ministers uh, a mile or so away, and we're able to encourage each other, but also to challenge each other and hold each other accountable. We don't want to condemn anyone. We don't want to condemn each other. But we want to have a big expectation that we're going to grow in our faith, that we'll be good witnesses to Jesus, that we'll point people in his direction. And people won't say, you're a hypocrite. But people will say, wow, there's something about your life. There's something good about it. And we need to hold each other accountable. And we'd like to see in the church... If you haven't got those kind of relationships, one person, two people, uh, maybe there's something in a kind of triplet of people meeting together from time to time, maybe month by month, and holding each other accountable. That would be a wonderful thing to help us grow in Jesus and become more like him. And Paul struggled to get the balance right. He sailed into very choppy waters with the Corinthian church. But he wanted to love people in the name of Jesus and he wanted them to grow in their faith. And he worked hard and endured many hardships to see that happen. And those are some of the things we're going to learn from this letter. So I want to encourage you to think about Corinth, think about these issues that you see, and then we're going to move through the book over the next few weeks. And when I was reading it, one thing that that struck me is there's some wonderful Bible verses in the book of 2 Corinthians and I thought some of the weeks at least we ought to pick out some of those verses and start to store them away Uh, so when we're challenged or when we're struggling or when we're going through life we've got a resource of the word of God in our heart and minds to live well for Jesus in those situations there's two I'd like to, to pull out today as we finish and as I hand back to Ruth and to Scott. And the first one's 2 Corinthians 1 and verses 3 and 4. Let's read the whole thing out together first. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. That's two verses, maybe it's a bit long. But I was thinking there's lots of issues and problems and challenges that we find and people around us are in and we need to know God's comfort in those times. That verse really helps us. Last week Steve uh, was sharing about not letting your hands go limp but enduring with the power of Jesus through difficulties, through hellish situations through troubles and that verse can help us I've underlined a bit because I thought maybe it's a bit too long so let's try and remember the middle bit let's say just that bit that's underlined together one two three God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble let's try and remember that and hopefully we can publish 
some of these verses and make them part of our lives. And then finally, in in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 5, at the end of the previous letter, uh, Paul says he's going to visit them uh, on his way back from Macedonia, which is just in the north. And then his plans change, and he says, I'm actually going to visit you on my way to Macedonia and on my way back from Macedonia, so it would be a double kind of blessing. But there was a bit of resentment towards him. As I said, he didn't find it easy with the church. So some people were saying, well, you're fickle. You, you, know, you say one thing, and then you do another. And Paul wants to say, I'm, mo- I'm not being fickle. I've been thoughtfully and carefully and prayerfully reviewing my plans and I've made a change because I think that's best. I haven't done that just because I'm capricious and fickle. I've done that out of thought and prayer. And then he wanted to back that up by saying, if you think God is kind of yes and no and fickle and a bit like Donald Trump, he's not. God is yes and definite and true about his promises. They may not always work out exactly the way you want or exactly the time you think, but I'm making my plans under God. And God's led me to moderate them, but I'm going to be faithful to them. And God is very, very true about his promises. So in the words of Bob Dylan, God don't make promises, he don't keep. And the verse I want to to finish with is this one. 2 Corinthians 1.20, let's say it together. For all the promises of God in Jesus are yes and amen to the glory of God. And amen means so be it. That's what I want to happen. I want to go for that. Let it be. Let it happen. So a bit of a flavor, a bit of an introduction to Corinth, a bit of a flavor of these letters. But let's just say those two memory verses, and let's try and take them forward into this week and into the days ahead. God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble. Lord, help us to know your comfort and help us to mediate your comfort to others. And for all the promises of God in Jesus are yes and amen to the glory of God. Perhaps we could worship in our last part of the meeting. And let's stand together. I'd just like to pray. If you feel particularly burdened and troubled, or you know someone that's really struggling, I'd like you to to stand up now and I'll pray for that. And then I want to declare God's promises are faithful and true and then we're going to worship together as we close the meeting. Lord, I thank you that you're a God of all comfort and Lord, you know that the troubles we're going through, the hardships, the grief, the disappointment, the ill health. And Lord, I pray that Holy Spirit, the wonderful comforter of God, come upon anyone here who is struggling with troubles and hardship and pain. Holy Spirit, you know their hearts. Go deeply into their hearts and minister to them in their troubles and pains. And Lord, thank you that you bless us, but you also make us a blessing. 
And Lord, I pray that you will use us to minister your blessing and your comfort to those around us that are struggling and those that are in trouble. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Let's stand together. And Lord, as we sing, we believe the truth of your word and we thank you for the promises you've made. Thank you, you've made promises to each of us, Lord. And we say that the promises of God are yes and amen, so be it, in the person of Jesus, our Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.